This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Welcome to the show. I am Scott Radley in for Rick Zambrin today. Let me tell you what we're talking about today. Could you tell if a whiskey you were sipping came from an $85,000 bottle? The LCBO is selling bottles this Christmas for as much as $85,000. Is there any way a bottle could be worth that? We're going to talk to Davin DeKergamo from Canadian Whiskey about whether or not you could possibly, even if you had the money, justify spending that much. We'll be getting into a move to prosecute Canadian officials for what's happening in Palestine. Uh, The Ontario government spending money to try and combat car thefts. That is a big issue. There's a scam going on with seniors trying to get people to buy into home repairs Not real home repairs, though. We will talk about that one. The affordability of Hamilton housing, still an issue. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation has a new poll out that backs another poll about the carbon tax and how people want to get rid of that one. Much, much more as well, all coming up here on the podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I am here to help you with your Christmas shopping. Because if you enjoy... A little tipple. If you enjoy a little of the whiskey. Well, the LCBO came out with some offerings last week that they were making available to you. If, for example, you want to spend $3,000, they've got a bottle for you of uh, House of Hazelwood Sunshine on Speyside Blended Malt Scotch Whiskey 1983. But that's just like barely dipping into it. How about the Gordon and McPhail Glen Grant 1952 Platinum Jubilee Single Malt Scotch. $35,000 for that bottle. Or, if you want a little more, because that's not nearly enough, the Dalmore Cask Curation Series, the Sherry Edition, $69,999.95 for a bottle. But... That's just the beginning, because then you get to the Gordon McPhail Private Collection Milton 1949 Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, $85,000 for that one bottle. Which leads me to ask one simple question, could any bottle be worth that much? Could it really be that delicious that it would be somehow for someone worth $85,000. Davin DeKergamo is founder of Canadian Whiskey. He is a prolific writer about the topic. He created the Canadian Whiskey Awards. Joins us now. How are you this morning? I'm just great. And how are you? I am. Well, I've still got $85,000 in my pocket, so I don't know if I'm good or bad because maybe I should have gone out and taken a loan and bought this. Should I? Well, I'm here. If you want to spend that kind of money <laughs> on Christmas presents, but honestly, I think you could buy uh What's 85 times three? You could buy probably 300 good, really good bottles of Scotch whiskey and still have a lot of change left over if you prefer uh, that kind of money. There is no whiskey that provides you with a, a, a sensory uh, experience worth $85,000. There isn't. Okay, so you are you are like the expert on this. So if I were to put in front of you as a blind taste test, a, a like what's a what would be a really good bottle for that? Like a thousand dollar bottle would be an extravagant bottle for most people. If I put a one thousand dollar whiskey in front of you and an eighty five thousand dollar whiskey in front of you in a blind test, would you tell the difference? Well, I'd have to taste them, but I I think most likely yes, I would be able to tell the difference. They would they would taste quite different from each other, but 
and 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 you could taste more age. You could taste a little bit more probably probably on the eighty five thousand dollar bottle. Although some of them they you know they reach a peak and then they start to decline, even though they continue to age. To taste difference is one thing. To have that difference be worth eighty five thousand dollars or eighty four thousand dollars in this case, uh, it, it's ridiculous. It, those bottles are to be bought by people who want to show how much money they have or they haven't got a clue about whiskey and they think they're going to get a lot more whiskey some of them are worth money because of the packaging if you look at the packaging some of them have diamonds in the packaging the rubies and things like this but honestly in terms of whiskey this is just not and there just is no $85,000 mm. experience uh Really, what you're buying here is the ability to say, I can afford an $85,000 right. whiskey status. to impress your friends. All right, a status symbol. Okay, so do you know off the top of your head, do you know what the most expensive whiskey is that you've ever tried? I couldn't say. I've tasted whiskey that cost a few thousand dollars, but I've certainly got some very, very old bottles in my collection now that I bought when they were $165. And... Um, kind of was didn't like to spend that much money then that are probably worth you know ten or twenty thousand dollars or more like a 30 year old or big things like that but uh you know every year i pour whiskeys in fredericton at the fredericton whiskey show whiskeys from closed distilleries and we we often have twenty five thirty five thousand dollars worth of whiskey on the table if you if people were to purchase it for that price but of course we get it we get it from collectors who and often from my own collection donated to the show um I think the, the the nicest whiskey I have ever tasted was a black Bowmore from 1965, and it did cost $165. It now it, you can get it on auction now for about $55,000, and I honestly, it would not be worth your while to spend that much money for it. These these whiskeys are just they're just outrageous. So yeah, so yeah, I, I've, I've drank from a few bottles of but it's now a $55,000 bottle. Okay. And, uh, but that's you. And, and again, I've, I asked you, so I appreciate you answering the question, but as someone who has a trained palate and does this all the time. Now, if you have ever been sampling whiskey with people who are less prolific, as far as tasting as you, does the average person who isn't trained, who hasn't trained their palate to pick up everything, would they notice much of a difference? I think they would, and they may not like it. Uh, oh, you know, the, you know, you'll see you'll, there be, it'll be a lot woodier. I mean, there are some whiskeys out there right now, made in Canada, in fact, whiskeys that, that that have really totally impressed me. Like these are my whiskeys of the year. Like for under a hundred dollars, you can get you know the Canadian Club fifteen year old sherry cask. I think it's eighty nine or something like that, which it just blows my mind. It's so flavorful, so beautifully balanced, you know, and, uh, you know, like lot 40, lot 40, for, you're, you're in Hamilton, so from Grimsby, lot 40 cherry wood. Honestly, like these are beautiful. These old, old whiskeys generally are not well balanced because they've just been left too long in the cask, you know, uh, you know, another whiskey like lot 40 dark oak. Honestly, when I opened that bottle the first time, it blew my mind. I thought, man, I don't think I've tasted the whiskey this good in a few years, including some very expensive ones. Uh, no, I think that people who will may taste those old whiskeys and think either meh, what is it, or may not enjoy some of the woodiness. Interesting. 
you know, I mean, a great old whiskey was the was the Highland Park fifty year old, which had been matured in a dead cask, and it was not overly flavorful. And it, I thought it was really great. But uh, generally speaking, the only people who are going to be impressed is people who have you will undoubtedly tell them 13 or 14 times that you've spent $85,000 uh -huh. on that bottle. I'm guessing that if you spend $85,000, you are making sure everybody knows you've spent $85,000. you are not putting that on the, uh, on the shelf with some, I don't know, Jack Daniels and nobody's going to notice. You want everybody to notice that. Yeah, you got a badge on your chest that says, hello, my name is $85,000 whiskey. It's uh, it's really, uh, I, I, I can't imagine why anybody would want that. Will they though? But, there's one bottle. The LCBO says there's one bottle. Do you think it'll sell? I I doubt it. I mean, this is, a, this is something they do to get the press, people like you and I talking about them at Christmas time. It used to be they'd put out a, an expensive bottle and it would get stolen and then it would be a police report and in the news all the time. I remember people that kind of caught on to that. I really don't think the intention is to sell these bottles. I think the intention is to get profile so people will think their brand is wonderful. You know, so you get you, you get the the Aston Martin uh, Bowmore for I forget what it is twenty nine hundred or something like that. Well, you go to the store, you can't afford it, but you'll still buy a Bowmore. You know, I, I really don't think that that the, that the the intention is to sell a whole lot of these. Yeah. I, I remember the Janet Sheed Roberts bottle of Glenfiddich a few years ago, and I somebody in in Taiwan bought it, and I went to visit him. And uh, it was still there a few years later, sitting on his shelf. I'm it's sure. It's probably still open, not unopened now. I don't doubt it. I would be terrified to open it if I spent that much money. Uh, David de Kergamo, founder of Canadian Whiskey. You can find him online. Uh, website is canadianwhiskey.org. Go look him up. Uh, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And if you do have $85,000 and you want to spend that on a bottle of whiskey for Christmas... Please be in touch with Good Morning Hamilton. <laughs> we will come and sample it with you and find out because I'm never buying a bottle like that. Uh, let's take a break. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If I were to ask you a question and say, how much do you think you as an individual or couple or whatever, how much would you have to make your household income to afford an average home in Hamilton? What would be your guess? Just take a second here. Think it through for a second. What do you think would have to be your household income to afford an average Hamilton home? Pay the mortgage, pay the taxes, pay the whatever. What do you think it would be? What if I told you it was now $177,000 a year is what you would need? Now, that doesn't mean every dollar is going to your mortgage, but that means to be able to live a life and also pay it $177,000 a year to buy an average home in Hamilton. James Laird is the CEO of Rate Hub, which came up with this figure, uh, joins us now. James, how are you this morning? Good, thanks. How are you? I am, uh, I am good, but I am now suddenly a little queasy at the thought of how much somebody would have to make to buy a home here. That's an astonishing number and probably down a bit. It's a huge number. It's been rising uh, consistently since last summer when the rate increases started. Um, but actually from September to October, it actually got a little bit easier to afford a home in Hamilton. And that's because the average price of a home in Hamilton actually came down by about $25,000 between September and October. So you're talking about um, 
I mean, if it's 177,000, what percent of that are you suggesting would be just towards paying for the house? Is it because isn't it like a 30 or 40 percent, which is sort of the accepted amount that's the proper number? You're correct. It's about it's 40 percent uh, of your household income is is the maximum uh, that can go towards the home. That's how we qualify. What what you qualify for? And remember, that is a um, a pre-tax figure. So post-tax. It's much closer to, let's say, two-thirds of your, of your take-home pay. All right, so 177000 I'm trying to do some math in my head here. How much is that then? Um, is, uh, that means you're going to spend about $70,000 a year, $71,000 on your house. That, again, that's, that's, it's an astonishing number when you think of how much of your money is going to go there. It is, and um, you know, the, the, sort of the surrounding areas of Toronto... I saw some of the biggest run-ups in home values during the pandemic. And so we saw the prices run up significantly, uh, especially in Hamilton. And then later on, the rate increases, and you're left with this this huge amount of household income required to purchase. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of people, you know, who are single, they've got to pair up in order to qualify for, for a home in Hamilton. What does this suggest? So, I mean, we're talking, we've been hearing for years now that, we're expecting an increase of like 230,000 people to move into this area in the next 30 years. That's the official number when they talk about how many homes to build and all the rest, how many units we have to have. It's, it's somewhere in that ballpark. But if these are the numbers, who are these 230,000 people going to be? Because that, that can't be the average person. The average person doesn't have this much money. No, you're right. And uh, really how we've gotten here, a, a key reason is because of this, you know, Econ 101 supply and demand where we've been underbuilding across Canada, but in the GTA as well for, you know, decades. And combine that now with, with record levels of, of newcomers to the country. And we've got, you know, almost $200,000 required to, to qualify for that average home. Now, you know, our, our immigration policy, we do target... Um, you know, people who are educated and, and can uh, become employed here. So, you know, th- that that will be more people competing for that dwindling housing supply. Is the hundred, now just to clarify here, is the $177,000 for a single detached home or is that just to be able to buy something of the average price in this city? So it's, um, that's the, you qualify for the average price, including all dwelling types. So wow. the for uh, a detached, it would actually be higher than that. And then if you're looking more at a condo, it would be less than that. So that's, that's all housing types. That is, uh, if that doesn't frighten us, uh, you know, it's often fine to hear just the total value of a home, and that is crazy, but we get numb to that, I think, at times. But when you break it down into what you are on the hook for, boy, it's, uh, it is concerning. Uh, James... Laird, CEO of Rate Hub. Sorry, I lost your name there for a second. James Laird, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Okay, thanks for including us. Have a good day. That's, um, as I say, if it's one thing to say, oh, house is now $900,000. I don't even know. You know, that's like, that. we've said it so many times now, it becomes numb. But when you now know that you have to, in your house, bring in almost $200,000 a year to buy any kind of dwelling here? Really? Wow. Wow. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are now two polls out 
Angus Reed came out with one that said this, and Leger also, uh, working for my next guest and his company, came out with one, both of them, saying Canadians are strongly, strongly on board with the idea of the federal government suspending or cutting completely the carbon tax, especially on home heating, simply because people are so overrun by expenses these days. Josh Goldberg is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins me now. How are you? Doing very well. Are you at all surprised that, I mean, I, I the reason I asked the question, you, so I was going to say you're surprised that people want the carbon tax gotten rid of. Normally, I would say people would want any tax to be gotten rid of, so uh, that that's not the issue. But, you know, we have heard for years now that one of the overriding concerns of Canadians is the environment and somehow this would seem to play to that. So are you surprised that people seem to be putting their bottom line ultimately, seemingly ahead of this tax that theoretically would help with something they believe in? Well, I think that Canadians are realizing that actually this tax is perhaps theoretically helping the environment, but isn't actually in reality helping the environment. If you look at British Columbia, they've had the highest carbon tax in Canada for 15 years. And most years during that period of time, their emissions have continued to go up. You have Nova Scotia, which had the lowest carbon tax in Canada until July, when the Trudeau government imposed the federal carbon tax on Nova Scotia. They were leading the nation in reducing emissions with the lowest carbon tax. So I think that people are recognizing, number one, that the carbon tax is not a silver bullet on fighting climate change. We're missing all but one of our Paris Climate Accord targets, even though we are signed up for this carbon tax that's making life more expensive. So I think people are realizing that it's not actually helping the environment. And then on the other hand, I think they're realizing that this is a tax on necessities that people need regardless of price. So we have to heat our homes in the winter. That's not optional here in Canada. So, of course, 63% of Ontarians strongly agree that we need to get rid of the carbon tax on home heating. We have to pay to heat our homes in the winter. That's just a reality here in Canada. And here in Ontario, if you use natural gas to heat your home, you're going to pay about $300 in carbon taxes this winter. And I think Ontarians and Canadians realize that's fundamentally unfair because this is not a behavior we can just change overnight. We need to heat our homes, and that's that. By the way, before I carry on, let me apologize. It is uh, obviously early on a Monday morning. It's J. Goldberg, not Josh. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what I'm thinking, but sorry about that. Um, no worries. So I'll, I'll get it right. Uh, you know, I'll figure it out. It's early in the week. We'll get it right before we're done. Um, wh- one of the things I think that is so... Um, that has maybe led to this. And I don't know if this is the reason or not, but we know that a number of weeks ago, the prime minister and his government announced that there was going to be a break on carbon tax for certain types of heating, for uh, heating oil. And I just wonder, and I, I actually believe this to be the case, that a lot of people then looked at that and went, well, wait a second, is this actually a philosophical tax to try and help with something because we truly believe in what it's supposed to be for and that the government really believes it's going to do that? Or is this a sign that this truly is just a political thing? Because if, if, if you really believe that this is the panacea, that this is the fix, surely you would have not changed it. So I, I, I just wonder if a lot of people saw that particular move and said, well, wait a second, what is this all about then and why am I paying it? 
I think they did. And you know what? Um, apparently, there was a lot of pressure in Liberal caucus from folks in Atlantic Canada who were saying, MPs there, you know, our support as the Liberal Party is dropping here in the region. The tax is very unpopular. And the carbon tax on home heating, that was exempt in uh, the Atlantic provinces until July. And so people were starting to realize our winter bills are coming in. Uh, they had to fill up with home heating oil and costs were through the roof. But I think that's a very important point you make, particularly because home heating oil is much dirtier and has a much more significant impact on the environment than heating your home with natural gas. Yet the Trudeau government is giving a carbon tax exemption to Canadians who use home heating oil to heat their homes. That's up to 40% of folks in Atlantic Canada. That's only 3% of people here in Ontario. But most Ontarians are heating their homes with cleaner natural gas. And so I think that absolutely Ontarians look at this and just see it as a very political move. The well, Liberals had a lot of pressure in Atlantic Canada. Uh, they, they made a switch and, you know, they're giving an exemption to a dirtier form of home heating, but still imposing this costly tax on Ontarians who are using relatively clean natural gas to heat their homes. And let's not forget, I mean, you mentioned Ontario, but let's not forget you're giving the break, the federal government is giving the break to Atlantic Canada, which has traditionally been a liberal stronghold and out in Alberta, where it also gets really, really cold in the winter. Anyone who's been out there in the winter understands uh, not a lot of liberal votes out there. They don't get the same break. So, yeah, it, it, it certainly, I think, to a lot of people, probably does look like a very political move rather than something that fits with a philosophy that is going to fix something. Yeah, I think you're right there, but I also think that it's time for Ontario Liberal MPs to stand up because there's more than 75 Liberal MPs from Ontario in the Federal Liberal Caucus. That's double the amount of Liberal MPs from Atlantic Canada. And Atlantic MPs were standing up, we were told. We were told behind-the-scenes information. They were telling Trudeau they absolutely needed the exemption. The party was falling in the polls in that region, and so he caved and gave that exemption uh, but here in Ontario, the majority of our MPs are liberal, and they need to pressure Trudeau, just like those in Atlantic Canada, to get a break on home heating for everyone. So why haven't they, Jay? here in Ontario who use natural gas. Why haven't they? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, obviously, they haven't decided to stand up to the Prime Minister, because there was a vote on this in the House of Commons uh, to exempt uh, the Conservatives proposed, just exempting home heating all forms from the carbon tax not even repealing the carbon tax fully. The NDP voted with the Conservatives on this, which shows it's a bipartisan issue, but Liberal MPs from Atlantic Canada decided to stand behind Justin Trudeau and not stand up for their constituents, and I think they're going to pay for that in the next election. Well, yeah, well, it's um, certainly, as I say, these new two new polls, including the one that you commissioned, uh, would suggest that people are, even if they believe in climate change and wanting to do something about it, even if they believe that the carbon tax somehow is a step towards that, clearly right now they are on board with dumping it and whether temporarily or full time, um, this is uh, this is going to be an issue for sure because you know there is at least one party that is going to be lobbying hard after this and if it's a popular position, they're going to make hay on this one, and we know which party that is. Uh, Jay, Jay, not Josh, Jay Goldberg from the, <laughs> the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this today. You bet. Thank you. It's Monday, isn't it?
It's Monday. We'll try and get all the rest of the names right. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Saw a press release last week that, uh, I gotta be honest, I didn't really understand. I still don't really understand, but I'm sure my next guest will help me to understand. Uh, The media advisory, let me just read the first paragraph of it. This is to announce that a notice of intention to prosecute will be served to Canadian government officials on behalf of a group of Canadian individuals and families with relatives in Gaza. These relatives have either been killed, injured, or affected by the Israeli army as a result of events beginning October 7, 2023, or they continue to be stranded in the occupied Palestinian territory. The purpose of this action is to hold accountable any Canadian public or military official located in Canada or abroad where there is evidence that the person has been complicit in or otherwise aided or abetted the perpetration of war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide by Israel in the occupied Palestinian territory on or about October 7, 2023. It goes on from there. Andrew uh, Fergielli is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Joins us now. Andrew, how are you this morning? I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, This... Am I off on this, or does this sound highly unusual, something like this, to be announcing that you're going to be seeking to prosecute Canadian officials for something happening elsewhere in the world? Uh, no, you're not wrong. It is unusual. Um, also, legally, it's pretty much impossible for for this organization to be able to use the criminal justice system in this way. Um I think the better way to look at this is uh, what it has achieved already was, I I think, more likely the aim of it, which was to get people talking about it and to get publicity for it. But legally, um, in terms of serving a notice of intention to prosecute, there's no real vehicle for this organization to prosecute the Canadian government in the criminal courts for the, the allegation that they've uh, aided or abetted a war crime. Right. So uh, you're not off here. Right, because in Canada, I mean, we hear American legal shows, cop shows or crime shows all the time, and someone says, I'm not going to press charges. That doesn't really apply, though, in this country. You don't get in this country to decide whether to press charges. You could decide, I'm not going to testify against someone. But if someone does something to you, it's not really your choice because if you break a law in this country, you've essentially not made the victim of the person you affected. You've broken the it's it's got you've broken the law. You've you've committed a crime against the state, not against the person. It's a very different different situation. So to say I'm going to prosecute you, that doesn't work. Exactly, uh, I think you've said it very well. There, there is one entity in our criminal justice system from coast to coast that makes decisions on whether to prosecute and or continue prosecutions against somebody and that's the crown that's the state there is one narrow exception um, where a private citizen can go to a courthouse and swear out an information against the person okay and and in those situations, if the police, for example, decided not to act, an individual citizen can go to a justice of the peace and say, um, we'd like you to um, issue court process against this individual or this entity in the criminal justice system for some offense. But the problem is the criminal code gives the crown the absolute right to then intervene, take over the prosecution and withdraw the charges if they want. So even if this organization got a justice of the peace to issue 
uh, uh, process or a warrant uh, or summons against Justin Trudeau or the Canadian government or whatever for this, uh, the Crown would likely just step in and say, We're, we now are exercising our right to take over this prosecution and it's over. One of the things that this obviously would create is even if there was some Crown attorney who decided, you know what, I think this sounds like a terrific idea, does this not hopelessly politicize the entire process? Because immediately, would you not then have someone say, wait a second, so you're going to charge anybody that is involved supporting Israel, but Hamas and all the stuff that they did, I'm now going to go and demand that they prosecute anyone who supports Hamas. This, this thing would make this thing a giant mess in the system, wouldn't it? Well, and exactly, because it would it would bring the criminal justice system into decisions of international relations. Uh, and, and I think that if you sort of zoom out, not only does the criminal justice system not want to be involved in those sorts of decisions or in those ways, um, but I, I think you would see other political parties um, worried about then that coming back to haunt them for any decisions they make, should they be able to form a government. Uh, and I think it's it's telling that no political party um, is jumping on board with this. No political party is pushing uh, for this to succeed. Uh, and so you're right. It, it feels very much like the, the sort of thing where a lot of people are going to be concerned about overreach in the criminal justice system if something like this proceeds. On a much broader note, uh, leaving aside the Israel-Hamas thing for a moment, can you charge, can a Canadian be charged with a criminal offense if the criminal, if the alleged criminal offense does not happen within the country? Because you're a Canadian, let's say you commit a crime on a cruise ship in international waters, you are a Canadian. Could the Canadian government or could the Canadian system charge you or would you only be able to be charged by the law of wherever you are at that moment? Well, you are always subject to the law of where you are at that moment. So for your listeners traveling, they know if they take a trip to wherever, they are subject to the laws of wherever. But in certain circumstances, the Canadian government uh, can charge, or not the government, a person can be charged sure for an offense they commit outside Canada uh, in certain uh, limited situations. Uh, one of those situations is if any part, any significant part of the offense takes place here. So to give you an example, if I call somebody in another country and uh, direct them and encourage them to commit a crime in that other country, um, there can be right. a prosecution of me here. In other ways, if I decide to do it while I'm here in Canada and then go execute an offense elsewhere, I can be prosecuted here. And then there are some other sort of uh, uh, statutes and, and exceptions that are written into the criminal code. So it is possible um, to do that. Uh, and technically, I suppose this could fall into that if, if what the Canadian government did was deemed to be a crime because they would have made the decisions while being here in Canada. Right, but there has to be a connection here. So if it's a military person over there who is always over there, who makes a decision over there about something that happens over there, even though they're Canadian, this wouldn't even apply to begin with. It might not. Uh, it, it would certainly be something where if I was the defense counsel for the individual, that's something I'd be looking at very closely. Um, and, and I think that may be a consideration in, in any decision here in terms of if there was ever going to be a decision as to whether to charge people, which I don't believe there will. Uh, mm. But uh, I think the other broader things that we've talked about, 
are, are going to be more of a hurdle for anybody who wants to prosecute a Canadian government official for for Israel, Palestine, and and any foreign relations decisions that they take. Andrew Fergiuelli, uh, lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. Uh, you as well. It's an it's look. It's an interesting idea. A little out there. Not going to happen, but. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Car thefts in Ontario between 2014 and 2021 rose 72%. Last year, 2022, they rose another 14%. And as of late summer, midsummer of this year, we were already up 12% just here in Hamilton. 662 cars by the halfway point of the year had already been stolen just in Hamilton. That's not even all the way across the province. So the provincial government is now putting a whole lot of money, $19 million, $18 million, pardon me, into combating car thefts and giving it to police forces to figure out ways to try to cut back on what is going on. Donna Skelly is the MPP for Flamborough-Glanbrook, joins us now. Donna, how are you this morning? Actually, I'm getting sick. I think I'm joining everybody in the province that uh, seems to be coming down with this nasty cold. Well, we were talking about this new respiratory virus from China earlier in the show. Maybe that's what you've got. Hope not. Hope I hope not. not. I hope not. But, uh, you know, it's not uh, just a reminder for everyone to get your flu shot. Mm. What about this idea of giving money to police forces to try and combat this? What, what would this money go to? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what more police forces can do other than telling you lock your car and keep valuables out of the back seat. Well, it's interesting because locking the car doesn't necessarily prevent it from being stolen. The money is going to be um, directed towards surveillance equipment, software equipment, tracking devices, excuse me, training police officers on skills that are specific to to target auto theft. Uh, They're creating a new unit that's going to be dedicated to auto theft. Now, you have to remember this latest um, chunk of money, the $18 is on top of $51 we announced uh, a year ago, to to tackle auto theft, it is a it's a it's an epidemic in the GTHA, and we have to do something. The other thing that this we're hoping this will do is is allow police departments, police units, to work together to collaborate in tackling auto theft and organized crime. The link to organized crime to work with uh, and and foster partnerships with local car, car dealerships because. Some of these vehicles are being taken right off of the dealership lot, working with the insurance bureaus, the CAA, other organizations, just to, to push preventative measures and to track where these, these vehicles are going. One of the other questions I had about this, so that, that's, I mean, that's certainly something that, that, potential, that has the potential to be really helpful. One of the other things, though, is I'm, I'm wondering about penalties. So... Obviously, the Criminal Code of Canada is a federal jurisdiction, but the provinces do have some say in how that's administered. Is there something here that the province could do as far as stiffening sentencing, urging Crown attorneys to be more stringent on this thing? Is there anything from the, you know, it's it's happening, so let's make it more punitive to try and discourage people from doing it. Yeah, well... I'm yeah. not sure. I, I do believe, I mean, it's getting very violent. My, one of my colleagues was 
who's from Mississauga, was telling me his neighbor had one of the cars, and there are top 10 vehicles. I think the uh, Honda CRV is at the top, and <clears throat> Lexus is right below. And her Lexus was uh, stolen. They came right into the house with her in it, assaulted her, took the keys and took the vehicle. <clears throat> so these are very brazen crimes. And the level of, of violence is escalating as they become more and more um, uh, common. And, they're, of course, they're ending up offshore. One of the things that our government has been very, very, very persistent on is, is um, toughening the, um, the, the rules surrounding uh, release of, of people who are on bail. Because a lot of this is recidivism. These people have been in and out of court. They're on bail, they're on parole, and they're reoffending. So that at least keeping people who have been uh, convicted behind bars or at least charged behind bars until that they, they are in court if they have uh, a recurring record in either auto theft or any other uh, violent crime. Um, but it's funny you mentioned at the beginning, lock your car doors. You know, is that what we should be doing? Because they can come in now, and they're very sophisticated, and with some sort of a device, a laptop, uh, off your driveway. Figure out what your code is to start your vehicle and drive away. It's it's incredible. Yeah, no, we, we thought that making it more technological, making our cars more advanced would help, but you're right. It's uh, not necessarily that. And by the way, you mentioned about what are the top ones. Um, apparently, the in June, anyway... From Hamilton, the top stolen cars, Honda CRVs, Dodge Rams, and Range Rovers. So if you've got yep. one of those. Um, the I, F-150s I are huge. The uh, Yep. And the num- and uh, I think the uh, at the bottom of the list was the Acura, Acura RDX. So these are all vehicles. Some of them are trucks, mostly um, SUVs that are sought after. But what my concern is, if the vehicle is stolen, that is terrible. But if the vehicle is stolen and they're entering your home and assaulting you, mm. we've, we've uh, reached a different level of, of criminal activity. Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Well, as I say, it's uh, $18 million going towards police forces to try and crack down on this. We will, we will see, we will hope, because uh, anyone who's had this happen to them, whether it's having it stolen or just even having it, uh, I haven't had mine stolen, but I've had mine broken into and it's a it's giant okay. pain. You invaded, don't you? Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, let's, hope, let's hope that this can help with something to be a deterrent. We will see if that's the case. Uh, Donna Skelly, we'll let you go so you can uh, drink some tea and gulp some honey and uh, <laughs> hopefully get better. Appreciate you doing this this morning. Everybody stay well. Get your shot. Get your flu shot. That is Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough-Glanbrook. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. One of the sad realities of society in general these days is some people take advantage of other people. That is just, and maybe that's just not these days that's been going on forever, but we seem to be hearing more and more about scams, senior scams in particular, people who seniors who are taken advantage of and who are tricked and, you know, and this is not, some of these are elaborate. Some of them are very clever and I don't say that complimentary, they're cruel, but they are clever. And some of them just prey on people's fears. And lately we've been hearing about this new one. You've heard about lots of them, I'm sure. But we've been hearing about this new one where people go around and they offer to do a simple bit of home repair. And then when they start 
doing that very simple, inexpensive home repair, they point out to the homeowners that, oh, we found this as well. And then that leads to this and then, oh, well, there's wood rot and there's this and there's that. And there are now examples of primarily seniors being tricked. I don't think there's a different word, tricked out of tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. They just keep adding to what the cost is of homes repairs that need to be done to keep the home from falling apart that turns out, apparently, none of it probably really needs to be done. Bob Asadurian is the owner of Triple R Incorporated and he is the host of Just Ask Bob on Cable 14. Joins us now. Bob, how are you this morning? Excellent. Good morning to you, Scott, and to all your listeners. Appreciate you coming on to talk about this because I, I am not a senior at this point, but I could absolutely, because I don't know what I'm doing, I could absolutely see myself being caught up in something like this, where someone who looks trustworthy, sounds like they know what they're doing, seems like they're on top of things, comes to my house and says, oh, you know what? We just discovered X that is wrong with your house. I could absolutely see being caught in something like this. Well, Scott, don't be trusting. That's the first warning. We have to heed my father's advice. He always taught me as a young child, trust must be earned. Trust must never just be, you know, provided or given. If we talk about seniors for a moment, you know, we have to think to ourselves, why? The big question, why? I've been covering this for almost 20 years, and the number one demographic is seniors that are scammed or otherwise taken advantage, retirees. You know, we have to look at this as to why. Uh, my belief system is, number one, it's accessibility. Seniors are easily targeted because they're available. Obviously, they're retired, you know, they're home. As in the case with Toronto, uh, with the recent media coverage, these seniors were home. They were doing some work in the garden or work outside. And also now, besides accessibility, because they're obviously, you know, they're home, they're accessible, they're available, it's a situation, again, back to trust. They came from a different day and age. Definitely not, you know, not, not 2023 today. They came up in an era where you didn't have to have, you know, double deadbolts on the doors. You could trust people. The trust was was much, much easier in that day and age. So that's why they fall prey to this much easier. And, you know, we, we have to learn about that word trust, you know, especially people coming to the homes. I personally, I believe that this is the number one violation. I'm a contractor myself. I would have to be pretty, pretty desperate to go door knocking, which I wouldn't. I don't advise any contractor, any business to go door to door. You know, that's your sanctuary. That's where you have to be protected. Legitimate contractors, legitimate business people, you know, leave a card, leave a flyer. Do not solicit, do not bother people at their doors. But Bob, let me jump in for one second, because again, most of us, I think most of us are not like you. Most of us are not, uh, I'm in that category. I don't know everything about my house. I wish I did. I'm not a handy person. So if I have someone, even if I hire them, how do I know whether I trust them? It's like going to get your car fixed. You don't know sometimes if they're saying you need to have this repaired. You don't know your way around your car. How do you know? How do you trust or not trust? How do you know who to trust or not trust when they tell you something's wrong with your house? Excellent. Educate yourself. Obtain comparables. Obtain comparables. It's free. I mean, ideally, this is free education. So contractors, generally speaking, it's all free estimates, unless you're bringing in an architect, an engineer, a designer. But pretty well for these types of scams, all estimates are free. Collect three, four, maybe five. Get the estimates in, chat them up, discuss what's going on, why is the work needed, what materials are you using, 
get all, gather all the company information. Now, obviously, to save your time, first call the municipality, 905-546-2424. For example, call the city of Hamilton, ask for building department. In the case of these seniors that were scammed, mention to the building department. I'm looking at having a roof done or looking at having a chimney done. Is the permit required? Is the license required? Number one, the city will tell you as a resident of Hamilton, the contractor you hire to do your roof needs to have a city of Hamilton master building pair license. Now you're empowered. So now when you call these tradespeople or contractors, say, by the way, do you have the license? City of Hamilton master building repair. I would like to see it when you come to my home. Now you're going to eliminate the riffraff. You're going to eliminate the crooks and the criminals in the underground economy. So you're going to have three or four roofers come by, maybe five, only the licensed ones. Have them give you a written estimate. Now you have a resource to educate yourself, compare apples to apples, then hit the Internet. You know, something that wasn't available back in the day. Education, research, and take your time. No, no one, no one will be taken like these folks were in Toronto. Yeah, it's it's such a tricky one because again, if you even if you do what you're saying, and I think it's very good advice, you might have a couple people. I mean, different people are going to see different things, and uh, I mean that's just human nature that everyone's going to have a slightly different opinion. And it, there are some things that are going to be very cut and dried. There are others that may be a little more muddy, and it's just it's a it's such a difficult question. If you're not in this industry, how do you know? And you've just given some good advice on who to trust. Is there any? Is there a builder's code? Is there a builder's organization where everybody who is anybody of any value belongs that you can do a check? Well, the number one I would say is again the city of Hamilton licensing. The city does a phenomenal job. And not every city, not every municipality in, Ham- in Ontario has this. So in Hamilton, for a contractor to become legitimate, number one, they have to have, uh, possess the police clearance. So this clears a lot of hurdles right there. They show that to the city. They sit down for a two-hour open book examination on the Ontario Building Code. Then they must sign an attestation form annually to the city upon renewal, proving, attesting that they carry minimum $2 million liability coverage. Now, I'm a real advocate for the licensing in Hamilton because, again, it does a lot of justice to the homeowners. I can tell you the license is not a guarantee that you're going to have perfectly painted straight straight lines on the wall or perfectly caulked joints on your countertops. But generally speaking, a licensed contractor is not going to take you for a ride, is Mm. not going to scam you. Will there be gray areas? 100%. In home renovations, nothing's black and white. There'll be gray areas, but that's where the comparables come back into it. So for shingles, you'll have a variety of estimates, different warranties, different types of shingles. Ask for references. That's so valuable for homeowners, not only to speak to them on the phone, but to go down and visit the job sites, have a look at the roof, have a look at the kitchen or bathroom or basements. A lot of research must go into it. This is quite the opposite from just finding in your driveway or having somebody knock at your door and saying you're hired. Yeah, Bob, That's we got instantaneous. We got to run, but it's it's great advice because if you're going to be spending, if you go to the store and you buy a hot dog for $2, who cares? But if you're spending exactly. 75 or 100 grand, you should do some research and should get yes. some yeah, uh, Bob Asadorian, you can see him on cable 14 all the time. He's also owner of Triple R Incorporated. Thanks for doing this, Bob.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.